this is Solace. And this is Rags. And welcome to Samosa Caucus. It's our first episode. We're excited to be with you. This is going to be a fun podcast. What are we focusing on here, Solace? Let's tell the folks. Okay, so the, the idea of Samosa Caucus is there's increasing number of South Asians in politics and policy in the U.S., in the West. So we're all over the place. We haven't really, like, pushed a common message or a common theme, so we're kind of going to be exploring some different aspects of being South Asian in the West. And because there are so many organizations that have the name South Asian at the front of them, we didn't want to do that. So we decided to adopt the name Samosa Caucus. Yeah, it seems to be a... Uh... Uh, a fairly common theme like uh, i i think there was an article uh, that came out a little while ago as well uh that ha- uh, that was talking about the samosa caucus and you know i i think it's an interesting time right now uh it's not that we're we're just going to focus on south asians uh l- like you said right out in the us uh just around the world and you know we're just going to give you our take on you know what general policies have been and how south asians are starting to uh, get in and work with the political system and, you know, influence uh, and be big influencers around the world. So I think it's exciting times. Just a real quick about ourselves. I'm a developer, but uh, I'm also really super politically inclined. Uh, Sauce and I have known each other a while and we were talking about putting a podcast together and, you know, the Samosa Caucus thing came up, and you know, I think this is this would be a good theme, a fun theme to work with. I'm also a de- developer, so we're both developers. We're both South Asian developers. It's a stereotype, I know, but we're also nice. <laughs> yes, living the stereotype. That's that's how we like to roll. Yeah, and our first theme is um, H1B. So I think when we get around to that topic, we'll we'll uh, we can dive more into that. But that that kind of fits with the whole software developer stereotype. Just to go over real quick, like we. You know, we, we call ourselves developers, but both of us have been like kind of been all over the place with stuff that we've done otherwise. Um, and we'll, we'll go into some of that, you know, as we put out other episodes and, you know, uh, go into some of our other background as well. I'm sure we'll it'll come up because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm definitely a little bit of a narcissist. So I'll, I'll try and bring myself <laughs> up if and when I can. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, let's actually let's 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 hop into the first. Uh, thing that we want to talk about, which was the everything around the H1B stuff that's kind of happening right now. So I, I don't know about a, a lot of people are, who are second generation in America who are South Asian came where our parents were H1B originally. So H1B, what is it? It's It means that you come over, you're tied to an employer, you have a visa for as long as you're with that employer. And it's a high-skilled type of visa. So the idea is that that employer looked for somebody for that position in America, couldn't find anyone, and then searched internationally, found someone and is bringing um, that person over to America to to work. So as long as they have that job, they have the H-1B visa, they're sponsored um, by that employer. But if they don't have that job anymore, then they're, they, they don't have the visa anymore. It's, it's tied. Um, so that, that was big in the 1970s. Currently, 70% of H-1B visa holders are um, Indian nationals. I, I think it's a 70% of visa holders. There might be 70% of people who came last year. I should take better notes. But it's it's basically 
a large percentage of the people who are here on H-1B are Indian nationals. I think that's a that's a fair representation of what H-1Bs are. And uh, yeah, I, the 70% number, I, I would... Uh, I think we'd we'd have to go back and look at that uh, because I, I know for a fact that it, it's it's probably closer to eighty or ninety percent of um, applicants. Uh, I don't know; it's possible that the sum total of H one B holders uh, fall into that category, but uh, I'd safely say that uh, the number of applicants themselves um, are just massive. So, uh, to give you some idea, I think last year there were uh, what's do you know? Do you have uh, numbers on the total uh, number of H-1B visas allowed? I think it's something like 170,000 a year or something like that? No, 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 no. I think, um, so I have, there was a peak of 195,000 per year in the early 2000s, but even last year it was down to 65,000 and then plus 20,000 for people with um, masters who got their masters in the U.S. So it's actually come down a lot over time since the peak in the early 2000s. But the number of applications are still fairly high from what I understand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure the number of applications is significantly higher than that. Yeah. And also, uh, to, to point out to people who aren't really aware of uh, what uh, what the visa actually is, it, it's more like a lottery system now because there are so many applications. I, th- I, I really thought that I saw somewhere like there were like 200,000 applications or something. Um, and so, so essentially what it is, it becomes a lottery. So it literally is like, okay, well, here's, you know, Apple, you filed for X number, you know, Google's filed for X number, other software companies have filed for X number, you know, the big Indian consulting firms have done for whatever. And then it's like truly a lottery, at least from what we know, uh, where they just go and pick out a set of folks and they're like, okay, there you go. Yeah, I saw that 200,000 number too. I think it's the 200,000 is applicants and that's applicants in the first several days of it opening and then it becomes the lottery because the idea is you really need those people, but it's higher than the cap. It's way higher than the cap. So it becomes a lottery system. Yeah, so so the uh, interesting part also with uh, the large number of, you know, people of South Asian descent, uh, taking over, uh, especially, uh, from the Indian subcontinent, it, a lot of, a large number of these are also applied for by, um, you know, these, uh, boutique, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say boutique, uh, a, a chunk of them are boutique consulting companies, uh, locally in the Bay, but then they're also, uh, by some of the bigger consulting firms, Infosys, Tata, uh, Cognizant, and so they actually file a fair few of H-1B visas. So uh, the way that would manifest itself is, you know, an Apple or Google or someone would be like, hey, you know, we need um, a bunch of developers to do this one thing, writing in something in this language of this level. And uh, we are willing to pay some amount of money for that, let's say, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy dollars an hour, and then a consulting company like a Tata or Infosys or any other smaller consulting company would be like, "Hey, I can offer you um, a candidate who's really well qualified for you know uh, for that amount." And then what they do is they go and source uh, those candidates or find them overseas or wherever it is or part of their uh, corporate structure is basically to hire and train a bunch of people. So they'll find people overseas and then they'll they'll come in and say. They'll go to the guys, uh, the individual candidates, and say, okay, well, you can work for this company and go to the U.S. on this H-1B visa, and we can um, we can pay you, 
maybe 40 bucks an hour, right? And so what they do is they run payroll uh, for those guys, uh, pay some taxes, and then they basically pocket the rest. Uh, so it, the consulting companies, if you could think of them, they're basically middlemen. Um, the H-1B visa also comes with its own intricacies. Uh, for example, once you're in an H-1B visa, you can't have a switch of actual job function uh, what that means is if you're hired as, let's say, a Java developer, right, uh, you can't go from there to being a, let's say, a senior technical program manager and then have um, have that continue. What you essentially need to do is your thing resets at that time. So in a sense, you're tied to a certain job or progressions of a job or job function, uh, and you can't really switch out of that. So there, that it kind of ties your hands a little bit over there. Uh, one of the other problems that we generally see is also that when people uh, go into this, uh, because of the large number of applications and because of the slow processing time, uh, because of such a huge number uh, by the government, the progression from H-1B visa holder into a green card holder is, uh, at this point, If you today if you get an H-1B then for you to get to a point where you have a green card in hand, it is about 12-ish years. And it's it basically just, you're, you're tied. You, you can't do anything. Uh, you could, you'd be working for a big company, and no matter how much you liked or disliked the job, I mean, you're stuck in the sense that if you want, if your end goal is to get a visa to be able to live in this country over a longer period and provide for your family and not have to deal with potentially leaving, you just kind of have to stick with it and wait it out uh, until you get to a certain point. I believe it's until you get the EAD, uh, which is a work authorization or something like that. But yeah, that's that's kind of how it goes. So the, the, re- the one reason this is such a hot topic right now is like like so many things, uh, Trump has made some bold statements about it, um, kind of saying that, portraying it as he does as those foreigners are taking our jobs. Which is kind of the way that he he likes to to talk about things. I do want to clarify that there's so this is a you know obviously it's a far more complex issue now. While I'm not going to claim that uh, uh, our president knows full well the details of uh, such intricacies, uh, you know he may. <laughs> He's, he's not known for no, uh, knowing the details, but yes. So let's just say he's not—he's not a details guy. Uh, but but in a sense, uh, it's something that you know pe- people need to kind of step back a little bit uh, from the xenophobia aspect of it and uh, think it out. And in a sense, what what the the way—it's not that people who come in with an H one B are expressly coming in saying, "Haha, we are now going to colonize America." It's it's they're just like everyone else trying to get a job and trying to do their work. And in fact, a lot of times uh, people who have or who are on H-1B visas generally are fairly cautious about what they can say, do, speak up and things like that, because it'll affect them directly to a point where if you ever want to come back to America and work, if you have an H-1B visa that's actually canceled or something else happens or your employer fires you, then your recourse is to try and find another job as soon as you can for someone else to try and sponsor your visa, which is not cheap, by the way. Um, it's I, I believe it's like 8, 10K or something. Uh, at, you know, They just need to try and find a way to stay in the country and somehow work. 
Um, a lot of it is also because uh, you have to understand the paradigm of things in India. Uh, there's tons and tons of engineers, a lot of people who are coming out uh, of so many colleges out there. And for you to get these kinds of tech jobs, it's not easy. Uh, it's just not as prevalent. And so for them, it's, you know, it's just another way to live. And it's, they're coming, uh, they're trying to use a legal channel to come in and work and provide. And they're, you know, taxpayers, just like everyone else. Uh, but coming back to the paradigm of uh, people uh, taking over jobs to some extent, they may not be taking over jobs, but definitely one of the things that um, a cheaper workforce like that, that I, I would say they're, their final goal or their end goal is not to, uh, it's to get the green card, right? It's a means to an end. The H-1B visa is to get uh, long-term stability to be able to stay and earn and, um, you know, contribute to this country's economy. They are willing to take a hit on salary if need be, because for them, they see the that as a far more valuable upside, which is the ability to stay here. Uh, what that does do is it, it definitely does decrease uh, or... I'll say that people are able to earn less uh, or the salary uh, considerations are a little lower uh, given the fact that there's a lot more competition in the market for with cheaper labor. Um, and so it does, it does tend to uh, skew the market. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing or anything. I'm just, this is what it does. Yeah, the colonization language is, is a weird kind of language given that that's not the way that colonization works. And we should know as... South Asians, like the British came, took our resources and uh, put us to work. And I mean, they've done that in a lot of places. So yeah, they they put some structure in place. But I mean, they weren't elevating South Asians to power, certainly. They were, they were doing the opposite. And I think that that word has been thrown around in some kind of conservative media. Oh, has it really? I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I was just kind of generally using it because I thought it was funny. Oh, okay. That, mostly because of why you pointed out. It was like a pun. But uh, Okay. I was assuming it, it, that was where you got it from. Maybe maybe they're not using that, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I've seen a lot of crazy, oh. I've seen a lot of crazy things. Yeah. I mean, but you know, I, I, th- I think it's important to uh, take, take a look at the holistic picture, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and even with what Trump was uh, suggesting we do, and, or what his policy statement was, was to increase the salary you could provide for people on an H-1B. That actually does have support, at least for the people I've talked to who are on H-1Bs. They did say that they supported that, uh, mostly because uh, these tech companies, they don't always play nice. Uh, I, I don't want to reserve judgment on everyone uh, and make a huge generalization because I frankly don't have the numbers and I don't know. But judging by the people I've talked to working at various companies, they are taken advantage of pretty frequently. Uh, The H-1B is held over their head. Uh, There are people who work here who, there are stories of people who've basically come in. There are companies that operate where you come in, you pay them the money that they need to pay you back to show that they're paying you a salary. And they just show you in a legal way that they're paying you whatever amount of money it is per year, whereas you're actually under the table giving them that cash so that they can they can show that they're that they're you know spending money. You know they're like, hey, I'm paying this person ten thousand dollars, and you just turn around and you're paying them ten thousand dollars in cash under the table, and then they're just putting it back in your bank account and showing it in a legal way. And because they're like, well, you know, if you want us to process your H one B, 
we can do that for you, but you have to pay for it. And you have to pay for this and you have to pay for your own salary. There are people who don't get paid for months. They can't do anything about it. Uh, the, the, the conditions of some of the people who are on I'm not, again, it's not a large section of the populace, but people, some of the people who are on H-1Bs are definitely taken advantage of. And um, it's, it is like other H-1B type systems around. Uh, one that comes into mind is the Kafala system in Qatar. Uh, that's uh, or in the in the, in the Middle East is whole. I talk about Qatar because I grew up in Qatar. Um, is uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a form of modern uh, day indentured labor, uh, and and I think the I think it's important to kind of set the uh, uh, for people who who are not aware of this issue and aware of what H one B is and how people are going through it. Uh, it's it, it, you know you you need to understand that. People live in fear. Uh, it's not like everyone on H-1B is just like always super hunky-dory about everything. Uh, there are people who find themselves in good situations, good jobs, things they like to do, and things work out for them. Uh, but there are also a lot of people who, who aren't. Um, so it's, it's just, it's, it's a nuanced issue. You know, there's a lot to it. So I, I want to add some numbers to what you were saying. Um, currently, there's 1.5 million people um, who are here on H-1B and w- like waiting for their green cards. Many of them are, are waiting in that 12-year cycle that you were talking about, waiting for their green cards. Um, there are, on average, people on H-1B actually make around 40000 less than would be a comparable American worker. That difference is there. But then the flip side of that is that the people who are coming over are skilled labor. So other countries who are trying to build a tech scene are starting to realize that America is not looking so great in the world. And it's not, um, I guess it's not projecting the same beacon of hope as it used to. So it's not as attractive as a destination for South Asians who are looking to move up. So countries in Europe countries like Canada are saying, if you don't want to go to America because of the situation there right now, come here, help us build our tech scene. I don't know about how much that's narrative and how much that's truth, uh, purely because living in, uh, I recently moved here from Seattle, uh, and even being in Seattle, uh, just being a part of, let's say, two really hot tech markets right now in Seattle and the Silicon Valley in the Bay, there's a large number of people who just the, the, the flow in is, is still pretty staggeringly high. Um, and, and I, I, I think, uh, initially after some of the, um, hate crimes that had happened uh, earlier this year with Indians and such, uh, there was some, uh, hullabaloo in, uh, Indian media about, you know, are, are people safe and whatnot? And, uh, I think you, you need to, just kind of take that as, you know, isolated incidents that are unfortunate and the people who uh, carried out those crimes are being prosecuted. Um, I I think America still offers far more hope. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that this kind of growth, uh, they're talking about skills shortages and the the need for workers and stuff like that. But I I personally see this as not being the case um, for a while. to the point where uh, I can see a future in the next five to ten years where a large number of people just get laid off and they just have to leave. And 
companies will likely go through H-1B uh, holders first, is what I would imagine. A, because they're, in a way, they're temp workers in their mind, I would think. Uh, they, have, they, need, they have a renewable visa. Uh, and for companies to get them off the books, uh, it's kind of like, I'll say the voting population in America, you don't have a vote, right? Like you're an H-1B, you're on a visa status for how many ever years here, you don't have a vote or you don't have really have a say in how things, what, what happens, right? It's really the companies that are, are have been pressuring, uh, for example, the Trump White House. Uh, these tech companies are the ones who are like, hey, no, we still need all that cheap labor right now. So we still need you to, you know, not, you know, push that off. But the moment they don't need that anymore, who's going to speak up for the H-1B guys? Presumably no one, because they don't, you know, they're not really, uh, what's the downside? A bunch of H-1B guys are uh, laid off, they're unhappy, and they come out with all this news. Then you're just going to have people who are like, well, you know, if you don't want to in this country and you don't care and you know it's unfortunate and there are a lot of unemployed people in this country so you could just go back to where you came from but but that that's what i'm saying is that they may not go back necessarily like they the indian tech scene is obviously growing as well but there's labor shortages skilled labor shortages in a lot of markets so even leaving hate crimes to the side that's part of a larger narrative picture that you you look at and say things are shifting against H-1B workers and maybe they don't have as much support. If you look at the number of people coming in to do their master's in the U.S. versus other countries coming from India, uh, their primary destinations have kind of switched a little bit. Uh, There's a lot more people willing to go to the uh, U.K., people willing to go to Australia, uh, New Zealand. So there are people who are taking other routes. Uh, you're, you're completely right. And that's, that's another trend that we've been seeing is like people have been channeling out into these other spots where they're trying to build these tech sectors. Uh, on the whole, uh, I think the tech market is going to come in for disruption. Uh, but I don't know how, how much this is going to uh, kind of affect things uh, in, in the longer run. That's what I'm a little unsure of at the moment. Uh, I don't have a key reading on uh, things. I think there's there might be some slowdown. I don't know if there'll be enough of a slowdown or enough people diverting to other markets where the U.S.'s shortage becomes glaringly obvious. And at that point, they're like, you know, yeah, we just need to increase the number of people coming in. Uh, do you do you have any reason to believe one way or the other that that would change, or what's what's your kind of take on it? So my my take is that. It will shift because there's obviously a shift towards remote work. Automation. Automation. So geography is not... um, It's easier to get a market started that's not replicating Silicon Valley. There's only one Silicon Valley, but there are tech hubs everywhere that need talent. And that if India is exporting talent, that's a good market to be in. Um, and if America is not importing talent, then there are other markets that would want to. One reason that the shift from H-1B to green card is so hard is because we have a really weird green card system where every country has an equal allotment, no matter how big or how small the country. So like Luxembourg and Liechtenstein, you want to come here, it's really easy because there's no, there's always green cards available. But you have India and China, you want to come here on a green card, that's not going to be so easy because there's so many people. Yeah, it's it gives uh, 
precedence to certain nationalities over others. Um, a lot of European countries especially have quotas that almost never go fulfilled because the state as a whole and society is not something that they want to trade off for coming to the U.S. And so uh, one of the things I think might help is if they switch that. And that's been talked about, I think, a fair bit, which is to kind of put it more into a general pool um, as a whole and then uh, maybe reduce the number, put it into a general pool and then maybe tighten the screws around some of the requirements. And uh, especially some of the, uh, I, I think there needs to be, there needs to be a sword that comes down uh, on like consultant companies that just prey on labor and that just, you know, they're just detriment, there's, they're causing detrimental harm to workers, they're ca- causing detrimental harm to industry because they're basically being the middlemen pocketing out of this. Find a way to get them out the system, get just flush them out. Because once you flush them out, then you're going to get rid of a lot of inputs now. It was easier said than done. Obviously, it's like an ingrained system for many, many years, and there's whole economies. I mean, India's economy is based on that. Uh, but, you know, that's something that they could try. Uh, the other thing that uh, I've actually talked to some people uh, who who work at, like, Cognizant and Infosys, who are telling me that the trend they're also seeing, and this is something that, you know, some of my other friends have also said was likely going to happen, is instead of now trying to get... Um, let's say, a team of five uh, H-1Bs to come and work here in the U.S. or process them, you just get one guy who's like a higher-level manager. So let's say they do the thing uh, that uh, the Trump White House had suggested, which is increase the base-level salary, right? So let's I, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say it's a, you know, you have to pay a minimum of $100,000. So let's say that's that's the good that's the thing they stipulate and whereas now it widely ranges from like 50 grand to like 150, 200, whatever it is. So let's say they say it's a base salary of $100,000 and what they're just going to do is they're going to get one guy to come here, process his visa, get him the $100,000, get their cut from there and then have him manage a bigger team overseas of people who are just paid, uh, you know, a fraction of the salary and then they're just going to, you know, go and keep getting the work done, except the work is now not going to be done locally anymore. It's just going to go overseas. And one of the things that's going to support that is all these uh, cross-collaboration tools and other tools that technology itself that's making it easier to work uh, in different places without actually having to be there. Like you were talking about remote workers or like co-locate, you know, different locations and like going out to different spaces. And so I think that's going to be uh, interesting to watch, to see what happens and how, how companies adapt. Because already... Uh, after Trump's come through, um, a lot of the big uh, consulting companies from India are trying to readjust their model and uh, trying to uh, kind of head this off at the pass, so to speak. Because at the end of the day, they would rather lose 30% of their income uh, or their so-called cuts coming from these workers or their workforce rather than have, you know, 70 or 60% of their stuff just go away or disappear because of, you know, labor issues. So they're willing to play with whatever the, you know, White House wants or with the business or, you know, um, the economy wants as a whole. Isn't what you're talking about similar to offshoring or outsourcing or what's the, what's the distinction? Yeah. So the difference, I guess, would be with uh, outsourcing a job, you're, you're taking a team. So let's say, you know, we, let's say we have a team of folks that are working on this podcast. You know, we have no team. It's you and I, <laughs> but, uh, but let's say, let's say there's like 
three people that we've employed, right, in the U.S. And then we say, well, guys, sorry, we have to lay the three of you off because we still need this work done, but we're just going to take that work and we're going to send our stuff to this team of three in India and have them do it, right? So that has to be called out as outsourcing. You're outsourcing the job. Now, if you create a more generalized pool of workers, and I'll give you an example. It's, uh, it's something that I'm in right now, which is called DevOps. Uh, and if, if you haven't heard that term before, it's basically... Uh, it's a mix of developer and operations, and the idea is uh, back in the day you needed people to go in and you know work on your servers and work on these individual machines, and that's that was their expertise. You know they would go and upgrade your operating system and do all this stuff, and then you had developers who were writing code and putting their stuff together, the applications, and they were taking it and putting it on those boxes, and these guys would ma- manage that. And something went wrong with the box, they would handle it. Something went wrong with the code, the developers would handle it. So there's this new paradigm that's come out because of uh, stuff like Amazon Web Services, where it's become very easy to actually programmatically create these virtual machines. Um, and so when when that happens, now they're just saying, oh, well, now we have DevOps, which is developer operations. So people automating it or people doing stuff, it, you know, they fall into that bucket. It doesn't matter if you're just working on the pipeline part, you're working on this part, that part. You're just the general common pool, you know, and that's fine. Now that becomes a generalized title. Now, if you say, I don't need three application engineers, two release engineers, and a developer that's like six people, I just need two DevOps engineers, right? So, or you could say, I need all six of you are just called DevOps engineers. So tomorrow, if you said, well, I don't need six DevOps engineers anymore, I just need a manager DevOps engineer and a regular DevOps engineer, you're at that point, you're just downsizing your company as a whole, right? You're not necessarily offshoring. But if that if that DevOps uh, engineer is represented as this manager, this person who can do all this stuff and there are all these responsibilities, but really under the table what they're doing is they're, uh, they are kind of outsourcing some of that work. That, that could be a potential loophole that you could be taken advantage of where you don't necessarily have to call it out in the numbers as I am outsourcing this job. It's more like, you know, we're, we're just, we have this person who is working on the stuff that's managing some stuff on their own and they're giving us back this thing. And they're like, we don't really care how you get this done. We just want this done. So it's like, it's more micro. It's like, um, you're, you're essentially an employee is offshoring some of their tasks and it doesn't really even need to bubble up to the corporate level. Correct. So as long as you can abstract away some of these things and which is what I think they're planning on doing, uh, they might be able to play it off. Now, again, it's it's up to good governance groups and other uh, rights groups and such to flush out some of this information and make this public. But again, with the tech industry, uh, it's really hard. It's flailing, it's large. And, you know, when this stuff happens, there's always ways to mask it out. I mean, how how many people, have you heard of the situations where people are basically more or less like held hostage, where they're just not, they're running out of cash. They don't have any money. They're not being paid. And they're just like kind of more or less like indentured. And they don't really have any other way out other than just to like up and leave with their families out of the U.S. back to India or wherever uh, uh, other country in the subcontinent where, you know, whether it's Bangladesh, Pakistan, wherever, where the chances that you're going to find a job doing what you do, getting paid what you get paid in order to be able to support your family. Because keep in mind, a lot of these kids come over here, they're not just supporting themselves, um, they're supporting their families back home, 
there's a lot of people, you know, there, it's, it's not a family of two, it's not a family of four. You're talking about five, six, seven, eight people, how many are people depending on this guy's paycheck? It, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. You know, it's a really big deal. And so that, that opportunity, that ability to do that, it's, it's, if that goes away, it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's going to hurt a lot of people. So, yeah, so I mentioned Qatar. So should we, should we hop on to our, our uh, next topic of discussion? Let's do it. Um, I'll intro the topic since uh, I'm sure you have a lot more to say about it. So Saudi Arabia has put a blockade on Qatar, um, which is where Rags is from. Um, part of that may relate back to um, Trump's trip to Saudi Arabia, and you can give your opinion on that. Maybe like um, exacerbate the already existing tensions in that area of the Gulf. So basically what Trump did was he expanded upon arms deals that we already had with Saudi Arabia and really greenlit some deals that were held up. Um, Saudi Arabia is using that to kind of gain muscle in the region as well as bomb Yemen. Um, and that was the reason that there were initially the arms deal was held up because of humanitarian reasons, because they're, um, of their bombing in Yemen. Um, and Qatar has ties as well with um, Israel, with Iran. So there's that that kind of Sunni Shia classic um, tension. And there, there are a lot of South Asians of, of all religions in that, that region. And I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Rags, to give a more complete picture of what's going on in the region and how South Asians play into that. Yeah, so the the Qatar thing was really out of left field. I, you know, it's if you look it up on the map, it's a tiny little peninsula coming off of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I I grew up in Qatar. Uh, you know, my my dad uh, worked in Qatar for thirty seven years. It, it was it was an interesting little country. He'd been working there from the seventies, so he he's actually had a lot of. Um, we we grew up. I grew up going to an Indian school, uh, doing uh, the Indian system of education. I only hung out with Indian kids. Um, I never learned to speak Arabic. Uh, in fact, we, growing up, the one thing uh, I remember uh, was a lot of us. We would, you know, a group of Indian kids would get in a fight with a group of Arab kids, and you know that's pretty much all the exposure I had living in an Arab country. Uh, which in, in hindsight, it's, it's crazy to think about that. That's, that's all I got out of it. Um, but essentially that's what it was. It was kind of a segregated society in that sense. And it was, it was definitely our family being Hindu. We didn't really have any way to practice religion at, at that time. Some countries have relaxed a little bit, but, uh, you have to understand that there's a there's a basic difference of uh, ideology there between Hinduism and Islam. Hinduism focuses heavily on idol worship. You know, Islam uh, doesn't necessarily believe in idol worship, to to put it lightly. Uh, and we'll leave that there because uh, we're not trying to do a religious debate. But the situation as a whole uh, is out of left field because it's a really small country that's kind of doing its own thing. Uh, I think somewhere in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, they found uh, on their uh, offshore, uh, basically their seabed that was part of uh, Qatar territory, really, really large deposits of natural gas. I believe at the time when it was reported, it was one of the it was the fifth largest deposit of natural gas that had been found for a country that size. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, when when I say it's a small country, it's it's tiny. Um, just look it up on a map, and. Uh, 
And so this, and so what they've been doing is when the new sheikh uh, at the time who took over from his dad when when I was growing up, uh, Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani, when he took over, one of the things he wanted to do was he wanted to start divesting. He knew that there was a, um, especially after they found the natural gas deposits, he was like, all right, this is our opportunity, right? We need to go away from just focusing on oil because this is not sustainable. It's it's a, it, you know, it's a resource that's that there's a limited supply, uh, we need to move on. And so what he did was he started liberalizing a lot of uh, rules with regards to business, with regards... So he basically took Dubai as a model, and his idea was let's let's shape Qatar up to compete with Dubai. You know, we're not going to compete with other places, we're going to try and bring in Western businesses, we're going to ease some of the rules on alcohol consumption, for example, uh, which, by the way, it's like if you're non-Muslim and if you're... Um, uh, I don't know if you're necessarily non-Muslim, if you're non-Qatari, like you can go to some of these hotel bars and you can order alcohol and drink, uh, I think. And then there's certain very limited spots where you can buy and consume alcohol in your home. Um, obviously, you, you you can't go to a bar outside, like, you know, party and like be like, yeah, you know, I'm drunk. Like, no, nah, you're going to get thrown in jail. But um, and it's not for public nuisance. It's like if you're drunk and a cop finds you or if you're drinking or, you know smells alcohol chances are you're gonna get thrown in so you don't want to do that but he took liberty in shaping the future of the country uh went after things like the uh, soccer world cup the asian games and so there the idea was to decrease dependence on oil-based revenue and build this new hub for uh culture uh i think qatar was one of the first countries in the middle east that opened an islamic arts uh culture uh or sorry islamic arts museum and it's 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 supposed to be pretty beautiful. I myself haven't been back to the country since my dad retired back in '07, um, and so it's it's been a while. Uh, but but I do know I do keep hearing back from some of my friends who are still there, who went to high school, and who actually ended up working in Qatar. And it, right now, it actually seems like most things are fine from a, a personal perspective for the people who are living there, and the authorities actually are focusing pretty strongly on uh, finding ways to decrease impact of the blockade as a whole. Um, yes, there are tons and tons of South Asians there. And so we, you know, we're exposed to a lot of different uh, cultures, but by and large, uh, a good chunk of the populace was kind of segregated to their own people because, you know, there were just so many of, you know, your own kind. And so you you just associated with them. Uh, but But we always had like kind of, you know, mixed South Asian type events where Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladesh, everyone would get together and we'd all, you know, do stuff. So it was cool. So the impact on them at this point is not super high. Um, so Qatar as a country seems to be okay for the moment, at least publicly, that's what they're saying, right? Uh, uh, what what I think uh, is happening is, yes, I think Trump going there, he had, to, I mean, the timing just makes it seem like he is, he was like, you know, Possibly Saudi and those guys were like, hey, you know, we need to do something about this Qatar country because they have Al Jazeera and they keep talking smack about us and about our policies. And, oh, you know, they've, they've sent some bad stuff about the U.S. too. And I could totally see a conversation where El Presidente was like, wait, what? They're talking smack about all of us? That's awful. You guys should just do whatever you got to do. And they're like, really? We can do whatever? Yeah, yeah, do it. We got your back. <laughs> and they were like, sweet. And they were just like, we're just going to block you guys completely. And, uh, you know, and as you know, as you can tell, just by Tillerson, uh, you know, came out, came out later and I was like, hey, guys, come on. You know, let's just 
Just let's just sit down and chat about this a little bit. You know, we don't need to do this. Come on. Because and there were some reports about uh, potentially Trump not knowing that uh, Qatar had one of the largest uh, U.S. military bases in the region. I think something like 10 or 11,000 troops. Uh, Yeah, there's we have a lot of troops in that country. I I saw uh, uh, American soldiers uh, quite a bit growing up. And this happened after the Gulf War, Um, I think after Saddam and all that. Uh, we basically, uh, Qatar was like, I think the Sheikh at that time was like, yeah, U.S., yeah, we're, we're cool with you. We have no beef with you at all. Y'all need to open a base and come over here. Do it. It's cool. And so because Qatar doesn't really have an army either, right? Like they're kind of a small country. So they were like, but, you know, as long as you guys help us out, you know, if people come after us too. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Don't worry about it. And so I think I think that's kind of how, you know, obviously I'm colloquially summarizing things. But I, I think uh, what's happened is uh, from all reports, Al Jazeera seems to have really irked a lot of people in their region. Uh, Qatar is also supporting the Muslim Brotherhood before uh, Sisi came into power. And so I don't think they were, Egypt was very happy with that at all. He, they, Qatar was a huge proponent of Mohamed Morsi because after they had a democratic election and the um, Muslim Brotherhood basically they were a set organization that were able to turn into this political machine and be able to go out campaign and win votes. And a large majority of the population actually voted for them. And so Qatar was like, hey, look, democracy is winning. Yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood came in, except a lot of people uh, in the Middle East don't like the Muslim Brotherhood. I believe it's because they're more conservative and a little bit more religious by the name of Muslim Brotherhood, you could probably tell. Uh, Saudi, again, wasn't happy because Qatar, I think, was trying to help the Houthis out a little bit in Yemen. Uh, Saudi's just been bombing the crap out of them. Uh, Yemen, a country which is on the brink of famine at this point, millions are going to perish. Uh, the international community doesn't. They're just kind of out of the purview of the world at this point. U.S. just has just signed, or Saudi's just signed a huge arms deal, which they're basically going to, I would assume, go and just bomb the crap out of Yemen even more than they have been. And by the way, there, there there's no surgical strikes there. That's just like a, let's just bomb large swaths of land. And, and I think Qatar's kind of tried to bend, you know, move more to a center position and try to become a little bit more of a deal broker. And, you know, they had this deal with the Taliban, like the Taliban had like this office in Qatar and they were the ones ta- like they were mediating. Qatar was mediating with Taliban and other, you know, with the U.S. and with Afghanistan and things like that. And I think uh, some of these other countries are like, oh, hold up, hold up. You know, you're a tiny ass country. It's over here and you want to do all this stuff and you're trying to like show us up. You need to stay in your lane a little bit, you know. So they're so I think they're trying to like force force their hand. The problem is Qatar is just coming out and they're like, what, guys, what are you, you know, come on, can we talk about this? Like, why are you guys being so mean, you know? And so since they're not, like, attacking back, and also the source of all this was purportedly uh, a fake news article, right? Have you, did you hear about the thing, like, where... Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. That's crazy. So right now the U.S. intelligence is saying that Russia basically planted this article uh, that said that the sheikh, uh, current sheikh of Qatar, went and uh, basically was talking smack about Saudi. And so Saudi was like, what, you're talking shit? Like, oh, we keep it real. You know, it's like the Chappelle skit. Uh, you know, when keeping it real, you know, goes wrong. So they're, they're, just, they're just trying to, like, you know, push the dialogue that way. But, you know, crazy enough, uh, there's some weird stuff happening. All of a sudden, for this country, which has been a one of the... You know, it's a predominantly Sunni country that has always played. Saudi is their pretty much their only land border. 
taken most of their stuff to Saudi. They've been on good terms with all the countries over there. They find themselves in a position where Iran is like, oh, you guys need help? We'll help you guys out. And so apparently they just flew over something like 60 planes worth of food, um, planes packed with food, uh, fresh, fresh supplies. Turkey is kind of like on the side of Qatar. So they're like, hey, yeah, you know, if you guys need some stuff, let us know. And Turkey's down. Iran is like opening up their airspace because all these other countries basically block their airspace out. And then you also just recently I read an article about how this local businessman in Qatar, they were trying to divest uh, from Saudi supplies of milk. A majority of the milk uh, and dairy produce comes from Saudi Arabia over land. And they're like, no, we wanted to set up, you know, whatever uh, dairy uh, industry in Qatar to help our local population so we don't have to rely on exports. So just now, this dude basically flew over from around the world, from UK and from some other spots, uh, a bunch of cows uh, and and created this massive farm. Uh, This is a plan that they had to do, and they were going to actually ship over, I think, over uh, by boat, uh, and start setting stuff up by September. But because of the blockade, they just took like this $8 million hit, this businessman who's you know probably pretty well loaded. And he was like, ah, okay, I'll just fly the cows over now. And then we'll just have to start production soon. And so that industry, that's going to come in and take over apparently supply at least a third of the demand off the bat starting the summer. And so there are ways that they're putting contingency plan. They're not moving. They're not really budging, right? Like they're, they're like, look, we're willing to talk, but you guys can't be like, no, we're just not going to, you guys are bad. Like, we're just not going to play nice with you anymore. And we're going to block our airspace. And they're like, dude, you can't just do that. Like we have other ways to go about it. And we have a ton of money. Like what, <laughs> what are you going to do to us? And so, uh, again, a lot of the, these reports that have been coming out from Qatar and from some of these places, uh, you always want to take it with a grain of salt because, again, state-controlled media. So, right. It is state-controlled media, but it's interesting that Al Jazeera is so big there, too. I'm wondering um, what the media diet of the people there are. And I think the South Asians in the region are mostly lower-skilled workers, if I'm understanding correctly. So uh, I don't um, think what that's their a, media... I don't think that's a... I, I think it's possible that a majority might be, but I don't think it's like... 80-20. I think it might be more like 60-40, if that, right? Like, Because you need uh, a lot of the people who are building the stadiums for the World Cup, which, by the way, we can, we can go into, I, I can spend an hour talking about the visa situation in Qatar uh, and, and uh, how, how, how there's indentured labor there uh, and, how, and how awful uh, things are in the Middle East for people going as day laborers and such, but We'll we'll reserve that for another time. Um, yeah, that'll be another that'll be another podcast. Yeah, for, yeah, likely. <laughs> Irrespective, South Asians by and large tend to mind their own business, do their own thing, read media that's more relevant in their own countries. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's not as you know, it's different in the U.S. Right? Like the U.S. When you come to the U.S., there's a culture that's different, but that's something that allows acceptance and that allows you to kind of integrate into it. Um, you know, I, I, when I moved here to do my undergrads, you know, I immersed myself and well, I, I guess I would be a not so great example because I was, you know, trying to consume American shows and American sports. And so I, I really, there was something that I really wanted to be a part of. Whereas like in general, if you came to this country, you have the ability to pick 
whether you want to stay and just be super Indian about things or integrate to some level or to a level that you're comfortable with and still practice your own traditions and cultures and still be okay and be a part of America. Whereas uh, in most countries, it's it's more like, you know, it's not. Like, especially growing up in the Middle East, I'll say as a Hindu, uh, there's no overlap. You know, the language is different. The customs are different. The religion is different. There's not much for me to integrate into in the Middle East. Plus, there's no way for you to permanently reside there. For example, my dad worked there 37 years. And when he was old enough to retire, when he had to kind of retire, and you kind of have more or less mandatory retirement, I think at like 62 or 63. And at that point, if you want to stay longer, you kind of have to apply for an extension uh, or like an exemption of retirement. And then you have to submit a medical report um, where they'll check you up and they're like, okay, you have no problems. That's cool. We can fleece another year off of you or not get your ass back home. And so my dad didn't really, we didn't have an option to live there, right? Like my parents wanted to live there. They couldn't. Uh, if we want to own property there, uh, you can buy property, but it's a 99 year lease. So at the end of 99 years, you give it back. Like you don't, you know, it's not like you, you can really own. And I think they've changed some of the rules now or relaxed some things because they just want people to put more money into their countries. But, uh, at the time it was like 99 year lease at best. Did you say 99? Yeah. 99 years. That's a long time. (laughs) It's right. It's a long time. And then presumably the idea is even if you have a child at that time, it's like if your child lives to be 100 or, you know, until then, you, you can basically have this property and give it to your kid. Um, and which, you know, in a sense, it's, I guess, pretty much like owning it. Like how, how many people here have homes anymore that they've owned for in their family for hundreds of years? Right? It's not really a thing. Um, but, but, you know, you, you didn't really have an option to gain citizenship. Uh, you couldn't do any of that. So the relationship you share with that country is I'm here to work. I'm going to be a part of your society. And then I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to leave. Uh, one of my buddies actually pointed out a couple, I'd say more like 10, 15 years ago, we were with a bunch of our friends from uh, uh, Qatar. We were hanging out and, you know, I was going on about, uh, it was right before the Asian Games, I think, actually. And it was here in the U.S. And I was like, yeah, you know, we can't integrate. We can't do any of this stuff there. And he was like, well, how much did you try to learn local customs? How much did you try to learn Arabic to do these things and try to integrate? Then you can't really blame anyone for not doing stuff. And that was actually, that made a lot of sense, you know. But it is what it is. Uh, I think from a South Asian perspective, you're not really uh, bothered about as much uh, of the news or local news. You're just kind of like, is this going to affect me? Do I need to leave? Because in like 91, when Saddam was like shooting out Scud missiles, one landed in a desert and all of a sudden a chunk of my friend's parents who were in school, like they just yanked their kids out and were like, nope, there's there's a bomb that fell somewhere in this country not taking a chance because, you know, we're we're not really the biggest risk takers. Let's just, you know... We we don't like uh, going with unknown. So it was like, oh, there's a mom. All right, I'm moving my family to India and I'm just going to sit here and earn my money. But I'm not taking a chance with my family. So they'd moved their families over and they all just grew up in India after certain points, after 91. It's important to understand also from the Al Jazeera paradigm that the although Al Jazeera is known seemingly as this investigative news outlet that goes and looks for stuff and they're they're pretty open about things and they go and find information i you know i would challenge people who 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 claim that it's completely independent to say how many negative stories about qatar itself or about the qatari government that they've actually published and done stuff with and 
the answer is probably little to nothing or if anything it's like a it's like a little you know hey guys that's bad kind of anyway uh yeah look at america america sucks you know so it's <laughs> it's it's more along those lines you know it's something it might be interesting to go look for news articles that al jazeera's produced that's against qatar and that's one of the things that people are like okay you've built this media outlet and that's why egypt actually went and arrested uh, these Al Jazeera journalists, they're like, so you guys want to do investigative reporting in our country, huh? It's like, get your asses out of here. Like, mm. we're just going to arrest you because, you know, it's another dictatorship. Which, by the way, I think it's super ironic that uh, the U.S. was like, yeah, democracy, yeah, Arab Spring, get rid of Hosni Mubarak. Oh, Sisi? Oh, he's, he's cool. He's cool. Yeah, I've noticed that, too, that it does seem like Iran had this big election and Saudi Arabia is a huge family dictatorship, like generations long. And somehow it just like it turns out we're totally on the side of Saudi Arabia and totally against Iran. It's it's a little it's a little strange. Yeah. So, you know, anyone who thinks that this is like there's not more going on behind the scenes is is like kidding themselves right because like even i can tell you like i had no clue man like i you know this came out of there and i started looking up into some of the stuff local politics like what's happening and essentially it's like one of those things like hey this is a nagging issue and we've been given the green light to go kind of take care of it or handle it let's go and let's go and kick some ass and i think it just kind of backfired a little bit on them at this point and you know, a lot of people in the West are like, huh, like what's going on? And you know, <laughs> some some are like blaming the U.S. and blaming Trump. But I don't know about like how much you can blame uh, Trump for it and how much, you know, they needed the back. Like the only reason they would need to have asked him, like they would have had to had America's approval for this is because America has so many troops stationed there, which if Donnie didn't know was the case, then, yeah, it totally makes sense. Like, you know, they then in hindsight, he was like, oh, crap. Like, you know, like, we, we need to handle this. So I, it's it's just a weird kind of state it's in right now. And I think that it's going to come down to something to do with some kind of broker deal where they're like, all right, so you need to stop reporting on us. Maybe you need to just focus your energies on other positive things for the region, i.e. anti-America. As Because one of the things that came out was they supported terrorist groups. I'm like, for Saudi Arabia to tell anyone else that they supported terrorist groups <laughs> is, is yeah. it's almost like it, it's a joke. And that's the other thing. With, when the Muslim ban came down and it was not targeted towards Saudi Arabia, but it was targeted against six other countries in the region that had not produced any terrorist attacks against the United States, you kind of have to ask yourself the question why those um, those were chosen. And it, it did turn out to be the six countries that Trump doesn't have hotels in. So that may be a coincidence. It's probably a coincidence. But I, I've had that discussion with others. Um, personally, I, you know, if you look at the other countries, yeah, sure, Trump doesn't have hotels in them, but are they actually stable countries where he could have had hotels? I don't think so. Like, yeah. I don't think any of those countries are really stable. So it's like, you, you can't be like, oh, well, he doesn't have hotels. So he's just, he's very clearly, and this is a narrative of, on the left, which is like, oh, he's clearly just like <laughs> picking countries that, do you think coincidence? I think not. I think he knew exactly what, it's like, no, I don't think so. I think, I, I think not picking Saudi was odd, but at the same time, the Saudi government is kind of being more careful after 
uh, Osama and 9-11 to like sift out people. So if anything, what they're doing is they're farming them out to these other countries and they're, <laughs> they're gaining access through there. Um, so, you know, whatever the, whatever's happening, uh, on that end, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's just a bizarre situation. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. I think there's more correlation there. I think he got some random Obama list and he just like repurposed it without thinking. I think the driving force is laziness, which makes it um, so in the past, there's been all this tap dancing around policy and Trump is really lazy. So he just like cuts right to the chase, um, which has definite um negative consequences, but then at least we talk about what we're really talking about. And um, so in this case, it's it turns out, okay, the, there's people who are just xenophobic. So let's talk about xenophobia. Let's not pretend we're talking about something else. Yeah. It's, it's like you repurpose some code and you're like, let's slap it in there. Let's go to production. Let's figure out what happens. And <laughs> they're like, oh shit, stuff broke. What happened? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, you should have kind of like figured out why you were going to do that. Like, what? Like, why did we have to do that? That worked fine. They had a list, you know, they had this piece of code. We could just throw it in there. It's fine. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, but uh, obviously nuanced approach is not something that's, you know, the prez is all about. So uh, I'll be curious to see. We could probably have a follow-up once things become a little clearer. And that's the other thing, man. Like the news cycle right now is so quick. Feels like it's been ages. Like it's like it's been three years of the Trump presidency when it's been barely like, what, a few months and it's just so much stuff just keeps happening on a daily basis that it's just uh, it's hard to keep track of. But yeah, we I think we've we have discussed a lot. Yeah, it's like over an hour. It's a good first podcast. I like it. So yeah, I mean the, we've we've talked a fair bit about uh, H1Bs and Qatar, uh, but I think uh, do you wanna do you wanna give a quick teaser into a couple of things we may be talking about in our next podcast, Sus? Sure. So there's like we mentioned at the top, there's a lot of Congress people and people in government, like uh, Vivek Murthy, who is uh, Surgeon General uh, last under Obama. Um, there's uh, other people also who are high in government on then, and there's the congressman now. There's people who are uh, in politics around the around the world. So try kind of di- doing a deep dive into these individual personalities, and hopefully, eventually, get getting them on the show. So those are. Uh, things that we're planning for the future. If any of the few people who will listen to this actual episode <laughs> so. and uh, any of our friends and anyone out there, I'm sure we'll, we'll publicize this, but if you guys have uh, any, know of anyone who's uh, really passionate about uh, politics um, and is involved in things to do with South Asia or uh you know, with South Asians, uh, anything relevant, uh, please do let us know. Uh, our website is www.samosacaucus.com. That's S-A-M-O-S-A-C-A-U-C-U-S.com. And uh, we'll, we'll have contact information up there. And uh, Salas, what's your, what's your Twitter handle? It's at Salas, K-S. So it'll be in the show notes as well. S-A-L-A-S-K-S. I will, I'm not a big Twitter user. Uh, so I, I, I'm trying to get into it, but it's just really hard if you're not, you know, you you have another podcast as well, right? Do you want to, do I I do have another podcast. It's a VR, uh, virtual reality centric podcast, uh, called, 
uh, pronounced current. Uh, it's spelled C-V-R-N-T dot com. Uh, you can go over there, check it out. Uh, we're on iTunes as well. Uh, it's me and my buddy Kirk. Uh, we started out in Seattle and we're continuing on with it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll, I, I think this is going to be a fun collaboration. I and mean, I think we're going to, we'll, we'll try and get people on the show and uh, try and get other opinions. And uh, it should should be fun. All right. Thanks. Yeah, thanks guys. And uh, we'll chat with you next time.